MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Most of you know me as AG from the Muller She Wrote podcast and the Daily Beans. I co-host Cleanup on Aisle 45 with Andrew Torres of Opening Arguments. All of our shows are part of a great lineup at mswmedia.com. This episode is episode four of the review of Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department by former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Today I'll be covering pages 126 to 160, which includes chapters called SDNY Takeover, Business Never Personal, E. Jean Carroll, and know your role. So last week, we ended with a chapter called Independence, which described the Southern District of New York, or the Sovereign District of New York, and its long history of following the law independently of politics, and sometimes main justice. Uh, And that chapter ended with the question, how did Bill Barr bring the Southern District of New York to heel? How did he cut off the head of the Southern District of New York? And that is where we pick up with this Southern District of New York takeover chapter, with Ellie telling us about prosecutors' phones blowing up with the news that Bill Barr had announced that the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, Jeffrey Berman, would be quote-unquote stepping down, and everyone had the same reaction. No way. Can't be. This is weird. Something's, Something's wrong. Something's up. Ellie says the first clue that something was wrong was the timing. The announcement came after 9 p.m. on a Friday, so they were trying to hide it. And within two hours, we all learned that Barr had lied when he said, Berman was stepping aside. And Ellie doesn't mince words there. He says Barr's public claim had been exposed as a lie. Berman declared, I have not resigned and I have no intention of resigning. Now, the next day, Barr notified Berman he was fired then. He says, I have asked the president to remove you as of today, and he has done so. With your statement of last night, you have chosen public spectacle over public service. Talk about gaslighting. Then Trump threw Barr under the bus and said he had nothing to do with it. Because Barr said, talk to Trump, he's going to fire you. Trump said, I didn't have anything to do with it. One of them was lying, as Ellie points out. Uh, but the timing, after 9 on a Friday, wasn't the only clue. Uh, the person nominated to the position was a guy with zero prosecution experience named Clayton. And in the meantime, a guy named Craig Carpentino would fill in as the acting U.S. attorney until Clayton was confirmed. The only problem is Carpentino was the full-time U.S. attorney for New Jersey. And Ellie tells us here, speaking from experience, no one can effectively run both offices. And Ellie gives a disclaimer here that he and Carpentino are friends, and Ellie's wife was his second in command. But the point 
is that Barr lied to Carpentino by leading him to believe Berman was stepping down of his own volition, and that's the only reason he agreed to take over, was on the basis of that Bill Barr lie. Quote, Barr lied about Berman's departure outside the Department of Justice to the public, and he reportedly lied inside the Department of Justice to one of his own U.S. attorneys in an effort to dupe him into going along with the scheme to remove Berman. But as we know, Berman only agreed to leave if his deputy, Audrey Strauss, took over as a, you know, acting U.S. attorney, and that's what happened. Ellie then discussed how Berman became U.S. attorney and talks about the blue slip process used to confirm U.S. attorneys. The blue slip process basically empowers home state senators to approve or deny U.S. attorney um, nominations or federal district court nominations for their districts. But in this case, in the case of Berman and 16 other U.S. attorneys, by the way, Trump circumvented the blue slip process. Maybe he didn't want to deal with Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand, who both publicly opposed Berman's nomination. Or it's what we've posited for a long time, and Ellie refers to here, that Trump liked acting positions because he can hold more power over them. He even said it, quote, I like acting. It gives me more flexibility. I like acting. I like to think he learned this move from Putin, whose cabinet of prime ministers are always acting. They're always temporary. Other considerations in the bar takeover for the Southern District is that Trump made the unusual move of interviewing Preet Bharara, who was nominated to the Southern District by Obama in 2009, and he actually kept Bharara in place, which is out of the ordinary. Usually presidents remove all U.S. attorneys and place their own through blue slip nomination processes and confirmation processes, but Bharara didn't last long. In March 2017, Trump fired Preet for reasons unknown, even to Preet. Ellie posits that Trump likely feared the independence of the Southern District and tried to cultivate a relationship with Preet, but fired him when he realized he was barking up the wrong tree. I tend to agree with that. And further, the timing of Berman's ouster just ahead of election season was suspicious, too. It raised the simple question, why did Barr fire him? He was a competent U.S. attorney. He was a longtime Republican donor. Barr had offered Berman other jobs, including the head of the DOJ Civil Division and chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, although we do well to remember that Barr also offered the top number three spot at the um, Justice Department to D.C. U.S. Attorney Jesse Liu, which she refused. So then Trump offered her a spot on the Treasury Department, nominated her, and then yanked her nomination when she was basically walking over to her new office. Why all the political theater to remove these key U.S. attorneys? Seems pretty clear to me. They try to give them other top jobs, and when they refuse, they're gone. And these are, you know, D.C. and Southern District. They posed probably the biggest threat to Trump. But, you know, why fire Berman? Ellie says we should first look at the Southern District of New York investigations and criminal cases that posed a threat to Trump and his allies. We know SDNY... Uh, indicted Trump supporter uh, Representative Chris Collins, and the Southern District investigated Michael Cohen. Of course, Berman was recused from the Cohen case, but that didn't stop Trump from holding a grudge against him and the Southern District for referring to him as individual one in the Cohen indictment. Perhaps Trump blamed Berman for recusing, like he blamed Sessions for recusing from the Mueller investigation. You should have stayed on and protected me. I'm individual one. Southern District also has a grip of investigations open into Trump allies, starting with Rudy Giuliani, who used to be the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Quote, the notion, Ellie says, the notion that the SDNY would end up investigating one of the people in the framed portraits 
is surreal to anyone who has walked down that hallway. It's a great sentence. Another case was the Parnas and Fruman show. They were indicted for a series of crimes involving the funneling of hundreds of thousands of dollars in illegal campaign contributions to pro-Trump PACs. Then we had the Hulk Bank incident. I covered this extensively on the beans and Mueller, she wrote. Trump tried to stymie the Hulk Bank investigation because he was trying to make nice with Erdogan. But that eventually happened. Then you remember Trump had told Erdogan he'd take care of the investigation, but ultimately he lost that battle, which no doubt pissed Trump off. Then there was the investigation into Bannon, who was ultimately indicted by Audrey Strauss for the We Build the Wall scam. Trump ultimately pardoned Bannon, but none of the other three defendants, proving Trump wasn't interested in the justice part of it, just the Bannon part. And of course, the Southern District had indicted Trump's friend Jeffrey Epstein. And the Deutsche Bank investigation was in the Southern District. So Trump had a grasp on the kind of damage the Southern District could do. And who knows what cases Mueller handed over to the Southern District that we don't know about still. I mean, there was just a just released today, August 6th, um, were some 302s with Manafort that are still completely redacted, meaning they're, they're ongoing. <laughs> Is that about Barrick? Probably. That's what Empty Wheel thinks. Anyway, after the Berman ouster dust settled, Barr was interviewed uh, by Pierre Thomas of ABC News, and Thomas asked him about the Berman ouster. Barr said the only reason he made the move was because <laughs> Clayton was available and wanted the job. <laughs> Ellie says, gee, who knew it was so easy to become the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York? Just be, one, available, and two, interested. Then he tried to say the phrase, stepping down, doesn't always mean what you think it means. It was just a ridiculous attempt to cover something up. Why would Barr mislead the public about Berman's departure? Why try to cover it up? Why not just fire him and say you fired him? Ellie says it's because that would confirm Berman wasn't leaving of his own volition, but with a, a push from Trump and Barr. Of course that looks bad. You're trying to fucking stop investigations, and you did. And right now, since this book came out, the Department of Justice Inspector General is looking into that fact. They're looking into whether or not the Tom Barrick indictment and maybe others were stymied by, by Barr. Of course, that wasn't Southern District, but, you know, you catch my drift. So, Ellie, you know, why? Why get rid of Berman? Ellie proposed the most obvious reason. Trump and Barr couldn't control the Southern District of New York with Berman. They needed a more pliable guy. They needed their Jeffrey Clark. Now, if you're listening to this years in the future, <clears throat> I want to give you a little context about what's happening right now in the news as we listen to this. And again, this, this is August 6th. It was just a few days ago that we learned from the Department of Justice, this Department of Justice under the Biden administration, that former, um, I think, head of the civil division in the Department of Justice and Trump ally and big lie proponent, Jeffrey Clark, uh, had penned a letter that he wanted the acting attorney general, Rosen, and his deputy, Donahue, to sign off on which said that there was election corruption and we're looking into it in Georgia and we need Georgia to stop what you're doing, get your Senate together, forget about the votes and the voters and just send up your own um, group of electors for Trump to Washington. And that's, <laughs> that's a, a huge conspiracy uh, to, to overthrow the government, to overthrow the results of a free and fair election. And so Jeffrey Clark 
uh, you know, we learned, I think, back in January or February that there was this dust up at the Department of Justice when Rosen was there after Barr left because Barr was like, I'm not there's no election corruption. I'm out. And Rosen, Trump called Rosen, the acting attorney general, and said, hey, just say the election's corrupt. Just say it's corrupt. Me and my buddies and Republicans in Congress will do the rest, quote unquote. That was 10 days before the insurrection that he said that. And then he said, you know, Jeffrey Clark, if you don't, if you don't do this, you know, Jeffrey Clark is a great guy. He might make a good acting attorney general. And then a bunch of people, top level officials at the Justice Department had a meeting and said, if he fires Rosen and puts in Jeffrey Clark, we are all resigning en masse. So Trump was talked out of it. But it was very close. But my point here is, is with the same with Berman here in the Southern District, Republican, longtime donor, you know, conservative guy not good enough, needed a pliable guy, or somebody that was too busy with their own attorney off, attorney's office in, in New Jersey to pay attention to what was going on in the Southern District so that they could take over and order stuff around. Who knows? But that, that reminds me of the, you know, get Jeffrey Rosen out of there. Republican, dickhead, no one likes him. But he didn't sign off on this letter from Jeffrey Clark. And Trump wanted to put Jeffrey Clark in, and they all protested and said, no, we'll, we'll all resign if you do that. He, he was very close. If he had gotten that signature or put Clark in, who knows where we'd be. We'd be in a massive constitutional crisis is where we would be. But anyway, that's Trump's gig, right? Put in pliable people or give it to somebody who's got another job that can't pay attention. Ellie then says, and rather presciently, Trump and Barr mounted an audacious campaign to bring the Southern District of New York to heel, but they succeeded only partially and temporarily. The statement has been borne out with the raid of Rudy Giuliani this year. And Ellie uh, closes the chapter by reminding us that Barr was never about process or principle. He was about loyalty to Trump. Now on to the next chapter. The next chapter is called Business Never Personal. Ellie introduces us here to his chief of staff, Robbie Miller, who knocked on Ellie's door one day. And I said, you're not going to like this. She had that look in her eye. You're not going to like this. This is, this is when he was director of the New Jersey Division of Criminal Justice, by the way. He was over like 500 prosecutors and detectives and staff at the time. Now, Robbie Miller was there to discuss an ethics issue, something that matters to career professionals in government. Trust me, I know. I studied the Hatch Act back and front. I hired a lawyer to consult me on the ethics of starting my political podcast while I worked for the government. I didn't tell my story for over a year because I wanted to wait the requisite amount of time to prevent it from being a conflict. And I was terrified when I was under investigation for hosting the podcast, because ethical considerations are part of your DNA when you work for the government, or at least they're supposed to be, right? So Ellie's chief of staffs, we have an ethics issue. He's like, uh-oh, what is it? Turns out one of their supervisory prosecutors was running a, a 5K to raise money for charity and was fundraising inside the building. And to make matters worse, he had a sign-up sheet for donations hanging on his door. I know, compare that to some of the ethics violations from Trump world. And it might sound benign to those not in government, but holy hell, this is a big fucking ethics violation. We take training on this every year, virtual training we have to take. In this case, the ethics apparatus in the office was mobilized, Ellie said. The supervisor was instructed to take down the sheet off of his door, and he was given a written reprimand. Yeah, Ellie doesn't go over the seriousness of a, a written reprimand here, but in the government, the order of punishments is, first you get a verbal warning, then a written warning, then a reprimand, then an admonishment, then a suspension, then a longer suspension, then a last chance contract, and then removal, maybe. 
That's how hard it is to remove a federal employee. All of those are in, uh, you know, uh, precautions and steps are in there to protect the workers. And to stay on that track, that whole long track I just mentioned, the violations have to be related. So charity 5K guy with a reprimand. Let's say he's late to work a few times, shows a pattern of lateness. He doesn't go from reprimand to admonishment. This is a new issue. So you start again with the verbal warning. All this to say how fucking terrifying it was to start a podcast, by the way. And Ellie drives this point home. The government, prosecutors' offices included, are different from the outside world. The Justice Department is just as rigorous, too. I'd say more so, uh, but no, they're all equal. These ethical standards are applied across government. Ellie quotes the Department of Justice handbook here. Employees shall not use public office for private gain. And the Code of Federal Regulations says you may not use your public office for your own private gain or for the gain of persons or organizations with which you are associated personally. Your position or title shall not be used to coerce or induce another person, including a subordinate, to provide any benefit, financial or otherwise, to you, to your friends, to your relatives, or to persons with whom you're affiliated in a non-governmental capacity. Anybody you know. So now you all get why I went by AG for so long and never gave you my title. Still haven't even though I've been separated from the government for over a year. It's that embedded in me. I waited for months after my separation before sharing my story with Politico. I waited eight months before I shared my interview with the VA secretary, David Shulkin. And I waited a year before I shared my story with the Whistleblower News Network by speaking at the National Whistleblowers Day just a couple weeks ago. These rules are known to all of us in government. And I have to tell you, those of us in government, for the right reasons, not only respect these rules, but like I said, they're encoded in our DNA. Ellie then talks about remembering uh, being told he couldn't even sell his daughter's Girl Scout cookies in the office. Quote, but Bill Barr, the top law enforcement official in the United States, dropped $30,000 of his own money to book a holiday bash at a hotel owned by the man who appointed him to the attorney general job, who could fire him from that job, and who was a potential subject of various ongoing investigations in his department. The Department of Justice scrambled to explain this glaring ethics violation by saying the Trump International Hotel was actually Barr's third choice of venue. The other two didn't work out. Well, Biden was my third choice, too, and and, and he, he beat you. <laughs> and he, he, he appointed Merrick Garland. You'll never see him cutting a five-figure check to a Biden hotel. Ellie says, now if Washington, D.C. had only three hotels in total— and the other two were booked, leaving Trump's place as the only option, then maybe, just maybe, this explanation would carry some weight. Then the Department of Justice called out the old Barr-approved ethics advisors. The same ones that said Barr didn't need to recuse from the Mueller probe. The same ones that let him oversee the Ukraine matter, even though he was a fact witness. His hand-picked ethics advisors. Must be the same people who write his OLC memos. <laughs> Bottom line here for me is if I can't sell my goddaughter's Girl Scout cookies in the office, which I couldn't and I didn't, then the attorney general sure as shit can't just pay the president a bag of money. In the, in the government, ethics decisions often turn on the mere appearance of impropriety. Those ethical policies were in place to help maintain the public trust in our institutions. Without it, and Trump knew this, faith in our institutions was eroded. It's just eroded. Now, the next chapter up is all about E. Jean Carroll, and Ellie opens up with a discussion about the pay scale for government prosecutors and the disparity between public and private sector employees. Ellie says he took a 50% pay cut to join. I can relate to that. I did, too, when I joined the government. It's, it's somewhat of an ongoing joke among government employees. Ellie tells a story about how he tried a case in which the DEA seized 200 kilos of coke 
and they were in bricks, right? $25,000 bricks. And they had a couple in the offices of the Southern District to use at trial. And uh, one of Ellie's trial partners picked up three bricks and said, here's your annual salary. <laughs> so this is all to talk about the so-called quote-unquote perks of government service, one of which is you get sued all the time. It happens all the time. And generally, if a lawsuit relates to your job, the Department of Justice will represent you. And we know a lot about this with the recent news of Mo Brooks asking the Department of Justice to represent him, saying the speech he gave at the Ellipse instigating the attack on the Capitol was part of his job. The Department of Justice said, fuck no. I'm paraphrasing. But here's, what we, here's where we get the E. Jean Carroll case, where Ellie says the Justice Department concluded somehow that when Trump defamed Carroll by calling her a liar, he was acting within the scope of his job. And to support this decision, Barr pointed, yes, this was Barr's decision, Barr pointed to a 2006 case where an appellate court allowed the Department of Justice to handle the defense of a congressman who made the comments to the media, who made comments to the media disparaging the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which sued the congressman for defamation. Ellie argues that makes sense. It makes sense that a congressman making comments about a political advocacy group did so as part of his job. According to Ellie, Barr did not explain how a president disparaging a woman who accused him of rape is part of the president's job. When everyone responded to this decision with outrage, Barr said, well, the White House asked us to. Like, that makes a difference. It didn't make a difference in the Mo Brooks case, nor should it make a difference here. Ellie also noted the timing of the E. Jean Carroll decision. The White House didn't seek certification for, from the Department of Justice. They didn't want the DOJ to rep Trump at the beginning of the case. They only did when it when its discovery happened. It started to look bad for Trump after the judge denied the motion to dismiss the case and let the case go to discovery. That's when they, they made this decision. So the timing is weird. Ultimately, uh, at least at the time this book was written, a federal judge rejected Barr's legal reasoning and denied his effort to have the Department of Justice be Trump's defense attorney. Judge Kaplan said, while commenting on the operation of government as part of the regular business of the United States, commenting on sexual assault allegations unrelated to the operation of government is not. And we all know what happened next. This Department of Justice under Biden said they would continue to represent Trump in this matter. Their reason being... Um, it's not about what he said. He was answering questions to the press and denying those kinds of allegations as part of the president's job. That's what's happening now. Finally, the chapter called Know Your Role. And if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that uh, when I worked for the government, <laughs> like this chapter opens up with another Ellie analogy. I love it. And this one has to do with him wanting to go to the FBI with the FBI to dig up a dead body. Now, I'm not going to give this one away. You have to read this story for yourself. But let's just say it's basically a real-life version of the final scene of Casino. <laughs> but as badly as Ellie wanted to go on this macabre field trip, as he calls it, prosecutors don't belong at crime scenes. Because if they get wind of any bit of evidence, anyone talking, anything they see while they're there, they'll be thrown off the case. And he says, here's the point. As a prosecutor, you have to know your role. It can um, get heady being a prosecutor. You're... You, you hold unimaginable power, and you can do almost anything you please and go almost anywhere you want, but a good prosecutor knows to resist that impulse. You're not a cop. You're not an FBI agent. You're not a forensic anthropologist. Know your role. And he says, Bill Barr never learned that lesson. And that chapter is what tees up next week's first chapter <laughs> on Lafayette Square Park. Barr didn't know his role. Neither did General Milley, but at least he apologized for it. Um, we'll also be covering Take the Facts as They Are and the Durham Investigation. It's pages 161 through 194. Can't wait to go through those for you. So uh, if you don't have this book, definitely get it. It's worth it just to read that 
dig up a dead body story. <laughs> but the whole book is so great and it's so well written. Um, I, I, I do ho- I hope that you all have it. Use, I, I know you are sitting on a bunch of Audible credits. Go grab it. It's a good book. You will not be sorry. All right, everybody. Until next week, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.